Welcome to Spy Hard's podcast. For the next hour, your host will go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam, the provocateur. And Cam, what are we doing this week? We are going back to 1994, baby. The days of James Cameron and Arnold Schwarzenegger ruling the cineplex, the multiplex, whatever you want to call it, the theater screens with True Lies. True Lies. Now, let's get this out of the way. Here comes your letterbox.com synopsis. True Lies. When he said I do, he never said what he did. A fearless, globe-trotting, terrorist-battling secret agent has his life turned upside down when he discovers his wife might be having an affair with a used car salesman while terrorists smuggle nuclear warheads into the United States. Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to say it's, you know, flowery dialogue or flowery writing going on there, but um, ooh, that got to the point and I think it sold it all right there. That is a... Oh, that might be an A minus in the Cam Letterbox synopsis rating scale. I was about to ask what it got, so okay, A minus. Well done, guys. Yeah. That's the sort of thing you can see on the back of a Blu-ray cover. It's it's short and sharp, and it does tell you what it does. I fear that someone just copied that out of like a TV uh, guide listing or something. <laughs> hey, leave that poor guy alone. He tried. <laughs> right. Well, Cam, I had no idea about this film before i watched it for this so i don't have anything really to say but do you have any initial thoughts on the film yeah well i'll get to mine in a sec i'm just very curious though because this was over here in north america this movie was a big deal did it not have any sort of like pop culture awareness over on in your neck of the woods yeah i was all of the age of of seven when this film came out and i was aware of it as an adult but it was never something that really played on you know, British television. It, it would certainly appear on the movie channels once in a while, but it doesn't really scream a uh, spy film or particularly interesting when you just see the title. Sure. And over, you know, in the UK, when, um, and, and in your case, in over in Britain, um, when you talk about the movies of Arnold Schwarzenegger, what are the ones that pop up as the go-tos? Because I would say over here, True Lies is very prominent when you're talking about the big Arnold movies. Yeah, that film is, is missed off of the list completely. I think the ones you tend to go to are the, the Terminator franchises, probably Judgment Day, uh, Predator and Commando, off the top of my head. They're the ones I just sort of auto go to in my head for, for Schwarzenegger. Oh, that's really interesting. Okay, well, yeah. So um, for oh. me... And hmm. Jingle All the Way. Oh my God. What's going on over there? <laughs> There's so many things going on over here, to be fair. <laughs> uh, yeah, for me, True Lies, I remember this movie very fondly. I was 13 years old. This open in, uh, that was like the summer where my friend and I just started really going to all the movies, you know, on our own. We were 13, so, you know, the world was our oyster. And for some reason, this one really sticks out because at the time, they had started using a new digital audio system in the movie theater. And I don't know if they didn't know how to calibrate it or what, but it was incredibly loud. Like, it would, like, give you migraines just going to a movie that was very loud with this digital audio system. And I remember True Lies, my friend and I going, and every gunshot had us practically jumping out of our chairs. It was, like, the loudest movie I've seen in my entire life. 
And uh, that did not have any effect on how much we loved it. We walked out in Nirvana. Like this was the perfect movie for us at the age of 13. And it's one that um, I watched many, many times over the years because we taped it off, you know, the Canadian version of basically Super Channel. Uh, or I think we call it Super Channel, but in the States, it would be like HBO. Um, and it just was a movie that got revisited over and over again in my house, um, which is maybe kind of uh, amusing when you look at maybe some of the uh, content of the movie. But back in the 90s, man, True Lies was where it was at. It's certainly got that vibe to it. It's certainly something I could see uh, teenagers watching and enjoying. As, 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 as It's a thoroughly 90s film. Yeah, and it opened like a handful of weeks after Speed, which was another massive, massive action movie for for me, but also for, I mean, at least in North America, Speed was a very big deal. And just having those two come out that summer, it was a fantastic summer for like big Hollywood action movies. So you say it was a big summer for, for blockbusters and action films. What, what other films came out in 94, apart from Speed? Um, well, the Flintstones, obviously. Oof. Now, that one I did see in the cinema, funnily enough. So I was going. <laughs> no, you had movies like The Professional came out, or it's called Leon the Professional in different parts of the world. Over yeah. here, we just called it The Professional. Um, and like it was more just like, I think the sense you had both in Speed, though, and True Lies, what I'm really trying to emphasize is you had these like $100 million full-on action movies coming out, which does not happen now. Like you don't... You know, they'll couch it more in a franchise, like a Fast and Furious or a, you know, a Marvel movie has lots of action. But in this point in time, in 1994, they were making straightforward action movies that cost an obscene amount of money. And that just was, it was a very, you know, special time and place. And it, in many ways, is kind of the end of an era. Because when you look, and we'll get into the box office in a bit, but... This is kind of the final stand for these types of movies. You know, they really do rule through the 80s. You reference Predator, um, Terminator 2, that's 91. But um, you had this whole run of action movies through the 80s into the 90s. And I do feel like this was the last stand for them. And not to refer to the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, The Last Stand. Arnold would never have a bigger hit than this going forward. Um, this kind of was the end of his big run as the like massive unstoppable box office force. After this, you get some good stuff that like Eraser, but none of these movies are huge hits the way that True Lies was. Um, and you know, it just does feel kind of like an end of the, the era movie. Now, I mean, I'll save my thoughts on the film obviously because it is my first time. But Cam, what do we have on the background? Okay, so True Lies was kind of a lark it doesn't sound like a movie that everyone was like okay guys we have a dream here and we are going to make true lies happen it was more like arnold schwarzenegger um got a call from his i believe then brother-in-law bobby shriver who had seen a french film called la total and he recommended that arnold remake it and um boy it must be nice to have like arnold as your brother-in-law just call him up and be like hey i just think you you know this movie would be fun if you remade it can you do that okay no problem <laughs> Hang on, let me just call James Cameron. I'll be right back. Yeah, well, that's what happened. He contacted James Cameron. And James Cameron at the time had been developing a Spider-Man movie with Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, and that movie, which if you want to read online about that Spider-Man project, I would recommend it. It's insane. It's basically like a very sexualized, probably R-rated Spider-Man movie. Um, it's very, very strange. Uh, so, yeah. But anyways, it fell apart. 
And so James Cameron was free. Arnold Schwarzenegger was in a very vulnerable spot because the previous year in 93, um, he'd released um, uh, Last Action Hero, which was a real debacle. And the thing with uh, Last Action Hero was even during production, it was a disaster. They went through a couple directors. Um, there was a lot of problems. So Arnold knew that he was kind of on shaky ground and he wanted a movie that would really deliver what he did best. And he saw True Lies to be that project by remaking this movie, La Total. So he called up James Cameron. Cameron was free suddenly because of Spider-Man. And so they decided to remake this film. It apparently does have a lot in common with La Totel. Like even some of the supporting characters are the same. The basic plot is the same. I tried to watch La Totel, but unfortunately I couldn't find a copy anywhere. I can only find Hannah in French, apparently. I can't get Lot- uh, La Totel. <laughs> so, just to recap, there was going to be an R-rated Spider-Man. Yeah, there was, yeah. That brings a whole yeah. new meaning to the phrase shooting his web. <laughs> oh, believe me, that was a full-on metaphor throughout that movie. Oh, Lord. There was like a graphic sex scene where he's up on the bridge and with MJ and he like webs her hands down. It's like really messed up. Oh, oh okay. But yeah, this, this film feels like it is designed for everything that Arnold Schwarzenegger does best. Pretty much, yeah. And, um, you know, this was the first film to have a production budget that exceeded $100 million. So the studio really did believe in True Lies in this remake of a French film that no one had seen. And I did watch the trailer for the French film. Um, I couldn't understand it because it wasn't in English. But in terms of the visuals, it does look very close. Like, it looks like that's like the, you know, $8 million movie. This is the $100 plus million movie. But nonetheless, you can really see the recognizable elements going on. Are you saying there was a Harrier jump jet shooting a rocket through a building into a helicopter? There was not. (laughs) (laughs) There was maybe a shootout with like three people in the woods or something. A a lower key version. Yeah, and that one had, uh, as the main focus was the terrorists were targeting a French football stadium um, versus what we did here with the big Harrier stuff in downtown Miami. Um... As for casting, uh, originally Jodie Foster was cast as the role of uh, Helen, uh, and she was signed on to do it, but left to go do the movie Nell with Liam Neeson. And Nell's a good movie. Um, I think Jodie Foster would have been really interesting. I really struggle to picture her doing some of the things in this movie, and it definitely would have made us look at Jodie Foster in a different way. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting choice. I'm just trying to picture her in some of the scenes. No, not that scene, Cam. No, but, you know, we'll talk about that scene later, but that's not the type of um, scene Jodie Foster would typically agree to do. No, that's true. It's not something I've really seen her tackle in her career off the top of my head. You might know more than me. Not that I can really think of, no. So, like, I think she would have been interesting, but ultimately she left, and they went through down the list of every available actress. Like, you can read some of the names. It's basically just name every actress of a certain age who was working at that point in time in Hollywood, they were on the list. So, you know, Annette Bening, Gina Davis, Sharon Stone, Michelle Pfeiffer, even Madonna. I think everyone was on a list. I don't think everyone took meetings, but everyone was on the list. I, I don't really want to see the Madonna version of this. I've got to say, Jamie Lee Curtis is, is terrific in this film. So it ended up pretty well. Yeah, and Jamie Lee Curtis um, won a Golden Globe for Best Actress in a Comedy or Musical. So... There you go. She was the right actress for the right role. Just sometimes that happens, you know. Serendipitous. Mm -hmm. 
the one that may be very curious now is the casting of Tom Arnold. Um, I don't know that people really have the most respect for Tom Arnold at this point in time. I don't even know if they did at the time either. But uh, for a certain point in time, uh, Tom Arnold was a star. And this was the movie that made him, in many ways, a star. He'd appeared on the Roseanne TV show where he wrote uh, for a while. He'd had a relationship with Roseanne Barr for a number of years, um, a very public and controversial one. Um, so James Cameron really wanted Tom Arnold in this movie so much. So the studio did not like this idea whatsoever. And James Cameron threatened to quit the production over it. Are they good friends or was it just one of those things where he sort of dug his heels in and that is what he wanted? They're friends now. Um, they've been Mm -hmm. friends for years since, but at the time I really don't know. I think James Cameron had a vision and that vision was Tom Arnold. When you're James Cameron, you can pretty much walk into the room at that point after you've had, you know, T2 come out, that sort of stuff. You can say what you want. And this was his follow-up to T2 as well. So believe me, James Cameron had the blank check going. Yeah. Yeah, I can see it. Yeah. Um, and just, you know, this movie is very interesting because, well, let's just talk about the box office. And then I want to circle back to something here. Um, it does seem, I will say, though, by production standards somewhat laid back for a James Cameron project. Usually his projects have nothing but nightmare stories attached. Um, You had some injuries, um, but in terms of the actual shooting of the movie, it doesn't seem like it was the nightmare that, say, Titanic was, or even uh, Terminator 2 was. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, in his book Total Recall, talks about how with True Lies, there was plenty of time to balance family and work. So that's not the case with a lot of the other James Cameron productions. I, I suppose now might be a good time to also point out your Arnold Schwarzenegger knowledge is is quite vast. And there is a p- specific reason for that, Cam. Yes, I co-host Arnie Geddon, which is an Arnold Schwarzenegger film podcast. Um, we do have a True Lies episode out there. But, you know, now that you're listening to True Lies, there's other movies out there. You can tackle all the, all the other Arnold movies on Arnie Geddon including we did one actually that actually is kind of tied to this. It's called Arnold's Lost Projects, and we delve into the Spider-Man stuff. So if you don't want to go online and read all about the Spider-Man movie that James Cameron was putting together, you can listen to the Lost Projects episode of Arnie Geddon. That sounds great. I mean, I just listened to the jingle all the way on repeat. (laughs) Of course, of course. So... The uh, budget, as I said, was $115 million, which in 1994 was absolutely insane. Um, but box office, it did very well. Domestic, it did $146 million. International, $233 million for a worldwide total of $379 million, which in 1994 was really good. Yeah, that is not a bad return on your money for 1994. I ran that number through an inflation calculator and it came out to $665 million. So, I mean, that's not like Avengers money, but that's really, really strong. How does that stack up against, say, uh, T2 Judgment Day? Oh, boy. Um, T2 did, I think it was like 220 domestic. So Terminator 2 did better. It probably would have been more around the like 500 uh, worldwide, I would think, somewhere like that. Uh, high 400s probably yeah i mean there's there's a reason why i own that one on 4k blu-ray and i don't own true lies well that's that's we'll get into that in a second but um (laughs) so the uh the top i'm gonna read out the top five for this year because true lies fell smack dab in the middle at number three 
um, for the worldwide totals. At number one was the Lion King, which not a surprise. The Lion King was a massive phenomenon and continues to be to this very day. Um, so that's not a surprise. Number two was Forrest Gump, which was also a massive smash. Three, as I said, was True Lies. Fourth was um, Jim Carrey's The Mask, which I feel is a little forgotten at this point in time. But, at you know, back in 1994 was a massive deal. See, in, in my you know adolescent head, I had The Mask as sort of a late 90s film because that is one I distinctly remember watching on home video, renting it from Blockbuster. But I must have been seven when it came out. Yeah, no, it came out the year of Jim Carrey where you had in one year um, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, The Mask, and Dumb and Dumber. That might have been his best year. They are all hits. Yep, 95 is strong too in terms of box office where he has... Uh, Ace Ventura 2 and Batman Forever, but I think 94 is the the real home run year. Yeah, but what year did Cable Guy come out? 96, the dark year of 1996. <laughs> hey, I have a little bit of love for uh, Cable Guy, I have to say. <laughs> um, so The Mask, as I said, was number four, and at number five was Speed. So big year for action movies on the top five. So very exciting time to be alive. Um, Some other notable releases this year in terms of the spy genre. At number 10, we had Clear and Present Danger, the third of the Jack Ryan films, uh, the second with Harrison Ford. And at number uh, 75, we had Leon the Professional. Um, So there you go. We'll be tackling those in the future. And a couple other notables just for this box office year. Arnold Schwarzenegger also at number 23 had the movie Junior, um, which wasn't a big hit over here, but I guess it did well enough to land at number 23. And Jamie Lee Curtis had at number 82, My Girl 2. Um, so there you have it. I didn't know there was a follow-up to My Girl. There was indeed. Um, so it's interesting, though, you know, you kind of touched on it a second ago about how you didn't have True Lies on, you know, HD or what have you, 4K. Um, True Lies is a movie with a very weird legacy in that it was a massive hit that has kind of vanished. Like I have a standard DVD version, but this is not a movie that's ever made it to Blu-ray. Never obviously has gone to 4k. And there's just been a lot of baggage with the movie. Obviously we're going to talk about maybe some of the gender stuff throughout the movie. Eliza Dushku, who plays Arnold's teenage daughter in the film. um, She claimed in 2018 that um, she was sexually assaulted by the stunt coordinator of this film during production as well. Um, And so like, there's a lot of baggage with this movie, true lies that has in many ways become its legacy versus the fact that it was a beloved blockbuster movie that has had a long life on home video. It's kind of just disappeared. It's very strange. And I don't know of a good comparison point for a movie of this size, just vanishing. And that's what surprised me about going back and visiting it for this podcast is I hadn't seen it. And you just think this is a film that most people who like action films from the nineties should have seen. Yeah. There's a really interesting moment in the movie, Captain Marvel, where you remember the part where Captain Marvel lands in the blockbuster video? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, she gets spooked and turns around and shoots her, you know, arm gauntlets or whatever and blows the head off Arnold's head and it's a standee for True Lies. And a lot of people took that to be a criticism of the movie True Lies and its kind of problematic place in history. Um, It's just kind of a weird movie in that for everyone involved, True Lies was a home run 
it really gave Arnold a lot of, you know, fuel just to keep going for a handful of more years, making, you know, big budget blockbusters for James Cameron. It's a massive hit that sends him off to go do Titanic, but it's a movie that nowadays, I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if a lot of young people, I mean, you know, people in their twenties have never heard of this movie period. Yeah. I, I don't think I've, I've ever discussed it with anyone younger than me. I, it's only really from doing this podcast and speaking to people online that I've been told this is a film that needs to be seen by you know, spy movie fans. But from doing some reading on this film, it does seem like it has its, uh, has its ghosts. It definitely does. And we should also mention as well, the movie was even at the time, very controversial with uh, Arab Americans who felt very offended by the portrayal of obviously the terrorists in this film. And there were, um, protests held in Washington, D.C., L.A., San Francisco, and Indianapolis. And um, they were going to make a sequel to this movie, and then 9-11 came along, and mm. the, all plans were kind of shut down. So it's like True Lies feels almost like it's a setup for a franchise, but even back in 1994, it definitely had, you know, you say it's ghosts now, but even at the time, it was a movie that, despite its fame um, and popularity, definitely had a lot of detractors yeah it's one thing i noted um when i was watching this film and i will get into our actual thoughts on it in a moment but if some of the jokes and uh, it does make a lot of jokes at the expense of certain uh, groups of people and sexes um feel like they're ripped out of an 80s comedy yeah i mean one thing i tend to find is comedy doesn't age well <laughs> yeah um you know you can look back at a lot of you know, 70s comedies, for example, that deal with gender relations and, you know, sexuality and all that. And you watch them now and you just cringe through them. You know, time doesn't stand still and comedy tends to be very of the moment. And I think that's the case with True Lies, too, is that I was kind of shocked how many times the word bitches said in this movie. I'm like, wow, you would not make that movie nowadays. And it's very strange as a James Cameron film, because James Cameron, when we look at some of the strengths of what he's brought to movies, obviously, Technical proficiency is his number one, but he's created some really amazing uh, female characters where you have, um, you know, uh, Sarah Connor, who is an icon. You also have him taking over the character of Ripley from Ridley Scott and, you know, directing um, uh, Sigourney Weaver to an Oscar nomination for Best Actress in Aliens. And then you even look at, you know, Kate Winslet, another Oscar nomination for Titanic um zoe saldana and avatar like that tends to be more of his thing what he really takes pride in his work and it's interesting how true lies seems the outlier there in some ways i think that's an interesting way of of looking at it i mean i i wrote down it feels like some of this stuff is ripped out of a hot shots film yeah and i don't know also how much that is due to the um the source material la totale right okay was that did that lean on the comedy as well yeah for sure okay Okay. Right. Well, um, do you have anything else for us, Cam? No, I think that wraps it up for me. So I think we can get into our thoughts on the movie. Let's do it. Um, I'll, I'll start us off. So as I said in the beginning, I had no information on this film. I am a, a fan of Arnold Schwarzenegger, but not an avid enough fan to have a podcast devoted to him. <laughs> There's very few of us out there. <laughs> there were dozens. Um but, you know, when I read about this film and I was told to go watch it and we decided we were going to have it on our list to watch quite early on, I was I was excited to tackle it. And, you know, issues aside, it's quite an enjoyable film. Yeah, 
I, I agree. I mean, I'm just so fascinated for you coming in the first time, like your expectations versus what you got. Yeah, okay. I had quite low expectations before I saw that James Cameron was involved. Uh-huh. I, I, I saw it was an Arnie film, obviously, and um, Arnold Schwarzenegger is known for a lot of things, but he isn't known for his acting. How dare you? I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. He's great as a, as a robot. Sure. He's he's mastered that. Um, and even in films where he's playing a human, he becomes a robot like Jingle all the way. I'll always find a way to segue back to that film. But um, yeah, looking at this one, I was a bit skeptical because, you know, playing a spy, especially, I think this film uh, leans a lot on old sort of Bond tropes at times. And I feel like you need some range. But surprisingly... Schwarzenegger kind of delivered, and I was actually—I think my low expectations were, uh, were were met and improved upon. This definitely—I mean, there are a lot of intentional Bond elements going on in this movie. It's definitely there was a point in time where a lot of major directors wanted to make James Bond movies, and just the way the James Bond machine rolls, they don't bring in at least at this point in time major directors to make James Bond movies. And so, you know, that's the reason that Steven Spielberg makes Raiders of the Lost Ark because he wants to make a James Bond movie and he can't do one. I mean, Spielberg wanted to do For Your Eyes Only. Um, And so instead we got Raiders of the Lost Ark, which I think worked out well for all involved. Um, And I think James Cameron, a little bit of a similar thing. I mean, he really wanted to make a James Bond movie, I think. He'd grown up on action movies and this was his James Bond movie. It's how do we make a James Bond movie through the lens of James Cameron? And we see even that continue to this day with Christopher Nolan making movies like Inception and Tenet. And, and Tenet, I was, I, one of the people who actually did get to see it at the cinema, I can say it does lean heavily on the spy side of things. But it, mm-hmm. I was another interesting thing about my sort of expectations with this film was I had a feeling it would be slightly comedy based, but it's more comedy than I thought it would be. And I also got the feeling it was going to be like a spy comedy film, a la like akin to, say, Austin Powers or something like that. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, Like really tongue in cheek kind of thing. But instead, it turns out to be more of an action film, which I I was completely surprised by. You know, by the point where, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger is chasing after a motorcycle on a horse. I thought, right, this is the kind of film we're in for. Fine. It's outlandish, outrageous and crazy. Fine. This is what we're doing. You were like, is this spy hards or horse hards? <laughs> it's back. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> for for me, revisiting this movie, I can totally recognize there's a lot of um, issues in this movie that just haven't aged well, a lot of elements that haven't aged well. But in terms of just a technical exercise, I think this is just so first rate. I watched James Cameron's direction of this movie and the set pieces he puts together and i'm just in awe and i think they hold up so well um i think jamie lee curtis and arnold are just having so much fun this is them at their sort of movie star charisma best you know the high wattage movie star performances and to me like even stuff that shouldn't work like tom arnold's quips and you know kind of goofball character they all kind of work within the context of this movie it's a lot of actors who I think are all delivering good work, even from the the top to the bottom. And, you know, while some of it may serve, you know, um, some comedy that doesn't hold up very well, everyone feels very engaged. And you never lose sight of the actors with all of the technical 
just fireworks going off in every direction. Absolutely. That is, uh, you know, tip of the hat to James Cameron for good directing. Um, I, I did have some problems with the pacing later on in the film, which I'll touch on in a bit. But mm-hmm. overall, I felt like it was quite uh, well paced and you could follow everything as you were going along. But one thing I, I also noticed is, and you kind of alluded to this before, is it's a film that everyone involved felt like they wanted to do the film and they liked what they were doing. Yeah, it does seem to be the case because, you know, James Cameron, Jamie Lee Curtis, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Tom Arnold, like they've remained friends over the years. Like it does feel like it's one of the rare James Cameron projects where everyone kind of got along. All the principal members really did get along. And, you know, you read the stories of Titanic and uh, I don't think DiCaprio will ever work with James Cameron again. You know, it doesn't seem like um, a lot of his other projects uh, and largely due to James Cameron, who can be a very volatile figure. Um, not so, I've heard he's mellowed out in recent years. Like I, you don't hear a lot of drama around Avatar, for example. But back in the day, James Cameron was known to be a real tyrant on set. But it does seem like in this case, he was working with at least like-minded people who had a vision for what they wanted this thing to be. And before we get into sort of individual actors and their contributions, and I, I, I was expecting this film to be a comedy, as I alluded to before. But I didn't expect it to be this sort of comedy. And I have seen Arnold do comedy films, again, jingle all the way. Mm-hmm. But uh, I actually, compared to, say, one of the other comedy films we've covered so far, Men in Black 1 and 2, I think I laughed more at this film. It definitely has some really good singers. And you don't tend to think of James Cameron as a comedy director. You think of him more as an assembler of massive action and I think one of James Cameron's best skills also is conveying very complex, you know, concepts or sci-fi ideas mm-hmm. very, very well and efficiently, which I think he does exercise here a little bit. Not as much. He's not called on as much to convey uh, the, uh, you know, finer details of Avatar, you know, world building, for example. But, you know, you don't tend to think of him as being a comedy guy, even though I do think there's some funny stuff in Titanic or um, even in Aliens as well. Um but here with him actually writing comedy, I think a lot of it works. There's a few bits that I cringe at that just don't work at all. Um, but by and large, I think he has the right vibe for doing a comedy here. What was one of those cringeworthy bits, the you're fired line, or were you a fan of that? Oh my God. In 1994, that was the greatest thing that had ever happened to me in my life. Did, did you and your friends just like high five each other like uh, Top Gun style? You have no idea. It was like applause in the theater. Oh, yeah, that was a big moment. No, I think to me, maybe the worst comedy moment of this movie, and it's not one that's going to jump out a lot to people, is the moment where Arnold's looking through binoculars and he's really angry and he cracks the lenses on the binoculars. That moment drives me crazy. It's just, it's too cartoonish. I don't even recall that and I watched it twice. Is that when he's he's observing his wife? Yeah. Right, yeah, which is something I want to get to in a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, let's let's dig into sort of the performances a little bit. Now, as I mentioned, Arnie certainly has his strengths, but I feel like he really delivered in this film. I think this might be Arnold's. Is this his last iconic performance? I guess you could argue. Mr. Freeze has become iconic, but not necessarily for the right reasons. That's like three years after this movie. Mm. But, you know, Arnold's biggest hit post this movie is Terminator 3, um, Rise of the Machines, 
which isn't great. Uh, it's fine. I, I enjoy it well enough, but I wouldn't look to that movie as like a grand iconic Arnold performance. I think True Lies might be the last one, unless you really are a big Mr. Freeze fan, which I kind of am. Um, cool off, Cam. Cool off. <laughs> Chill. Um, yeah, the Iceman cometh. Um, there's so many in that movie. So you can look up a YouTube compilation. It's insane. But um, to me, this is Arnold doing what he does best and really working on all levels. Like he does have the knack for comedy, but as an action specimen, this is just Arnold. Oh my God. Firing on all cylinders. Like when I'm watching Arnold fly that Harrier jet, there is not a single moment where I'm like, that's not Arnold. It's like, I a hundred percent believe Arnold is flying a Harrier jet at the end of this movie. While simultaneously hanging onto his daughter and fighting a bad guy. It's, it's terrific. Oh my God. Yes. I'm so curious because this is a sequence that I've lived with for, you know, over 20 years now. But when you're watching it, you know, now, what is your takeaway? Like visiting the sequence for the first time. If you show me a clip of that scene without the rest of the film, like, hey, Scott, this is how the, the film ends. I probably would have been a bit like, I would have been a bit unsure of it because of how outrageous it was. But I feel like you needed that ramping up of the horse chase scene uh, and like the interrogation scene and things like that. It just it just becomes more and more ridiculous as it goes along. That at some point, I think it just switch goes off in your head, and you're just like, "Yeah, fine, I'm in. Let's do it." Yeah, I mean, you can even look at the moment right at the start where he's crashing that party and he's chased by the two Dobermans and he knocks their heads together. <laughs> I love that bit. Oh my god, that was the first moment in the film. I I cried out with laughter. I wrote it down in like just if I ever fight dogs, that's how I intend to do it now. Uh, you know, little side note here, but um, when I was watching that opening scene of Arnold Schwarzenegger crashing that party, I could not help but think of two movies. Obviously, it's a nod to Goldfinger, but boy, with Cloak and Dagger so fresh in my mind and the adventures of Jack Flack, this reminded me a lot of that fantasy sequence that kicks off Cloak and Dagger. You know what? I felt the same way. I was literally waiting for a giant pair of dice to come rolling in. <laughs> Can you imagine? That would have been gold. <laughs> Is that another film that has to pay money to the old colonel who wrote the story originally? <laughs> that guy, yeah, who wrote like the source material for like every movie that's ever been made in Hollywood. Yeah, <laughs> it all flows back to him. Yeah, exactly. But um, yeah, so just getting back to Schwarzenegger, I just think this is such a high point for him of hitting all these comedy beats while also building a character because, you know, Harry Tasker does not feel like the same character we would see in some of the other movies. It's unmistakably an Arnold movie star performance, but it does feel a little different. It, it almost feels like he is, and you've said this before, I suppose, at the peak of his acting skill. Yeah. It actually involves him being emotional almost at some points and having to actually show some versatility in his performance and i mean obviously this role was written for him but i think he got it well you know when you look at say like goldeneye in 95 the following year it's a more sensitive bond um with pierce brosnan and intentionally so and was this at this point in the 90s the idea of the more sensitive action hero and is that what arnold's going for here it might be yeah, I'd say so. I mean, obviously, he isn't as sensitive as he potentially should be if it was written now. No, of course not. 
but you have to look at it from the lens of the time. And I feel like he comes across very approachable. Approachable and also vulnerable. Mm. And that's not something you see in a lot of Arnold performances. Um, you know, Terminator 2, there's a little of that, but he's still, you know, <laughs> this killer cyborg character. Um, and then, you know, you go to the past and you've got movies like Total Recall and Predator. Those are not movies with the most vulnerable of characters, Commando, Running Man. No, I mean, this film has a two hour and 20 odd minute runtime. So he certainly has plenty of screen time to flex some other muscles other than his actual ones. And I think Arnold's really good at capturing the dual life of this guy who is this badass spy, you know, when it, during his working hours. But when he comes home, he's kind of boring. <laughs> just to stand there so excited talking about, oh, new sales tech at work. It's so great. Yeah, and you'd see just, you know, their home life is very casual. Like, there's nothing glamorous about the way that their home life is depicted. And I just enjoy seeing Arnold in that world, walking that little rat dog, things like that. Yeah, it was actually quite bizarre to see him in this role when I think about it, compared to what he's done otherwise. You're the you're the man with the Arnie knowledge. Has he ever come this close in any of his other projects? To playing like this sort of like family man, just having I mean, that sort of vulnerability. He is a towering giant of a man. He looks like an action hero. So when you think about him being upset, it's kind of hard to get your brain around the idea. So, is there any other films he's done where he actually does play the more soft emotional side? I think you see some vulnerability in his performances in, say, more of his comedies, like um, Twins, in particular. I, I would say there's some of that there. Um, in terms of the action stuff, not so much, but he would work more in that sort of arena going forward with stuff like, um, end of days or even, um, the sixth day where the characters feel a little more like they're written to be everyman. Like Harry Tasker is not an everyman, but he has more of that everyman emotion sort of to his personality. In terms of writing a spy, this is a, a pretty well written spy for the, for the people who come to the spy genre wanting to imprint themselves on the life. Because, mm -hmm. you know, most people have the, you know, 2.5 nuclear family thing. They just need a dog, basically. Oh, wait, they have a dog. Yeah. Yeah, they do. That's it. And so people can go, oh, I wish I was a spy during my home life. And then I go home and talk about nonsense with my wife. You can see yourself in that role. And I think Arnie really allows that and opens himself up, which is nice to see. And it's kind of fun to see Arnold doing a movie that is very much about the plight of the middle-aged man, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and at a certain point, it does become as well about, you know, his wife as well. It's kind of like the midlife crisis movie. This is the, um, you know, like, is this like, are they ba they'd be baby boomers, right? Yeah, the baby boomer midlife crisis action movie. <laughs> right. So if, if they're not uh, talking to spies in cafes and, and going back to their trailers, they're uh, buying Mustangs and things like that. That's right. And you see that with Arnold up front where he is kind of bored in his marriage and now he's, you know, concerned about his wife having an affair. But we see through Jamie Lee Curtis's character as well that it exists in her life as well. And she talks about how, you know, she feels like she's missed out in life, whereas Harry Tasker has not missed out at all. He just wants like he just wants a quiet domestic life. <laughs> For someone who's an international spy, he's managed to keep, and I think he says for 17 years later on, he's managed to keep his home life locked down and never get involved whatsoever. Whereas usually in spy films, you see them taking people hostage straight away. Yeah. I mean, no kidding. He's been very good at it. And you wouldn't think he would be that good at it with a partner like Tom Arnold running around, but 
who knew? Well, there you go. Um, before we get on to um, Jamie Lee Curtis, because I have quite a lot to say about that, um, I did make a note about Arnie doing stunts or not doing his stunts because I watched it, well, I, a DVD copy as well. And you could clearly see in many of the scenes that it's not him. But I always thought Arnie was one of those guys who mostly got involved. Yeah, it depends. I mean, I've heard stories about when they were shooting Batman and Robin that um, Chris O'Donnell never once worked with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Really? Yeah. And Mr. Freeze and Robin do fight quite a bit. (laughs) I did not know that. Wait, so hang on. Are you telling me that Arnold Schwarzenegger did not jump into a giant vat of lava? Uh, that part he did, yes. Oh, okay, oh, okay, fine. Don't. I, I was about to have my childhood ruined, so thank you for keeping that intact. Yeah, he's actually um, died during that stunt, <laughs> and so everything we've seen since has been a CG recreation with stuntmen doing the action. We did mention ghosts earlier. Yeah, that's right. It's the ghost of Schwarzenegger in every movie. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I noticed the same thing. Uh, I can't say that the stunt doubles were that visible when I saw the movie in 94 or watching it on VHS tape, but... When I was watching it on a DVD on a uh, you know 4K TV, and we see those scenes, especially I found in the um, early in the chase that follows the party crashing sequence where mm-hmm. he's running through the woods, it was like just watching stuntmen run around the screen. Yeah, and like the the bathroom fight, which kind of is quite evocative of the Fallout uh, Mission Impossible Fallout fight with Henry Cavill. Um, yeah, you could just see it's not him. I think we're going to be tackling a lot of bathroom fights in this uh, podcast, Scott, because I was making a note on that. I'm like, boy, we've we've dealt with a few of these. We've had bathroom fights as well in um, Goldeneye. Uh, there's been quite a few bathroom fights. I do. I suppose just more the lighting in that one. And I have watched Fallout recently, so I suppose it's just fresher in my memory. Mm-hmm. How did they compare in your eyes? Uh, it, it didn't have Henry Cavill cocking his arms. So unfortunately, <laughs> that one will always win in my daydreams. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, that bathroom shootout was a big deal, though, back in the day. Really big sequence. It's well done. And actually really clever spy work in terms of, of how uh, Harry Tasker does it. Like leaving that little camera set up and waiting until the last second to dodge the pistol shot. I do love the way it works in James Bond elements with the gadgets and everything, but does make it feel so much like a James Cameron movie. It is, I, I don't like using this term. It is quite Americanized. Oh, yeah. Big time. Uh, I mean, the Bond films are now as well, but you know, it's just, it's quite bombastic. It's like, some of it is like James Bond on steroids. What do you think is the most American James Bond movie? Mm, That's a tough question. I have an answer, but I'm curious if you have a different one. My head jumped to Moonraker just because of how far it is away from the original concept of Moonraker. And it just is completely mad. Mm-hmm. That's uh, a good answer, actually. Yeah, it's, it just feels like they just gone. They, they were all tripping on LSD when they wrote that script. Right. I think my answer, just from a recent rewatch, would be Die Another Day, which feels so much like an American big budget action movie. So I uh, we'll get to Die Another Day eventually. We are tackling uh, the Pierce Brosnans at the moment, but I don't have any memory of that film. I, my rewatch stopped at uh, Tomorrow Never Dies. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that'll be an interesting one to revisit. That one, to me, feels like the most American and like this just big blockbuster with not a lot of that British style to it. It just feels like we're making an expensive action movie. And I mean, that's what James Cameron 
is a master in. So that explains why True Lies does feel, as you said, kind of the Americanized James Bond. I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger is not the dapper British gentleman. He, he is not. Uh, I, I would not allow him to be called Jimmy Bond. I mean, how amazing is it when Arnold is spending the last act of this movie in that like torn to shreds, um, like dress shirt with muscles just bulging through like that is the ultimate sign of Arnold Schwarzenegger as like the most virile action hero of all time. You could just see the progression throughout the film. It's like, okay, he's a spy. He's in a tux. Okay. Okay. Now he's in normal clothes. Fine. Uh, Now he's got his arms out. Right. We just give up. He's not a spy anymore. He's just an action hero. Sod it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he he's Arnie. Just let him be Arnie. Yeah, um, and I mean, and even stuntman aside, he's so convincing in the action. That's what I always love about Arnold movies. It's just how Arnold just completely sells these moments. And I mean, I we'll probably talk about some of the other set pieces going forward. But I mean, I love him in every action moment of this movie. I, I said to, I said it before. He's a big old tower of a man, and you buy him in those action scenes like he looks like he could beat those people up and then jump on a horse that's right um right well i think i want to tackle jamie lee curtis next mm-hmm. i at one point in this film i thought it was like like twisting on me and becoming more of a jamie lee curtis vehicle yep uh, and i was i was getting quite excited about that i thought oh, okay because i have a lot of time for jamie lee curtis she's a great actor uh, obviously, it just sort of goes back on itself later on. She becomes the sort of helpless, ah, save me, save me. But um, I really liked what she did with the role. Yeah, I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis, to me, is probably giving the best performance. Her character has the most baggage that people bring up as criticisms um, against the movie. But I look at like the physical comedy Jamie Lee Curtis is doing in this movie, um, as well as just how she is able to really take this Helen character through a real journey that I found really fascinating and a lot of fun because Jamie Lee Curtis herself seems to be having so much fun with the character. Like I think Helen is a character that when you have sequences where she's being dragged out, screaming and interrogated against her will, you tend to very much sympathize with the treatment of the character on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think it's something you would ever do in a movie nowadays. Um, But you have a moment where she is being interrogated and she has that kind of breakdown where she just talks about her wishes for life and you're emotionally connected to that character. Like she doesn't feel like a prop or a one note character. It feels like there's dimension there. And then it's followed up with a moment where, you know, they say you have to go on a mission or your entire life will be destroyed. And she's like, hmm, gee, let me think. Like there's a comedic zinger following what feels like a very emotional moment. And that is Jamie Lee Curtis's performance in this. Arnold is not a multidimensional actor, whereas I would say Jamie Lee Curtis is, and the movie is so much better for her work. Well, that's it. You you think about that change or the amount of time she has to change throughout the film. She starts off as this sort of a lonely housewife, which I can imagine the role being written if they were just using that as quite boring and, oh, help me, Arnold saves her end of the film but by the end she has an arc where she's a she's on par with harry tasker yeah i mean i wish they didn't have that move that moment where she drops the uzi down the stairs yeah and kills all the guys i've never liked that moment even in 1994 i didn't like it because i would have liked to have seen helen pull off a maneuver that actually made her look efficient even if it is in the style of her character like i don't picture helen running around with an uzi for example but maybe if she'd had something 
that showed her own cleverness. I think that would have worked better. Yeah, I mean, in terms of believability, Mac nines do have a hell of a kick, but you would think that maybe they would shoot it as like she didn't know the kick was there, but that was enough to kill the ones coming at her. Not the whole like, oh, I'm so mm-hmm. goofy, I'll drop it down the stairs. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I mean, you look at Helen at the start of this movie, and I got to give real points to whoever was putting together um, Jamie Lee Curtis's wardrobe as the housewife. I mean, they were working overtime to give her the most dowdy <laughs> costuming known to men. I mean, my God, like, holy smokes. You know, you remember all the jokes that were made with that movie, She's All That, where um, Rachel Lee Cook had like the ponytail and the glasses. I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis, they were working overtime. <laughs> it's crazy. It just feels like such a, a, a fun choice to make. They, they clearly wanted to make a funny film. And they didn't want to try and be too serious about it, but also give mm-hmm. the actors room to uh, actually, you know, try and make it serious. So by having all these interesting wardrobe choices, it kind of makes it believable, but kind of funny at the same time. And you really do get a sense of the transformation of that character through the wardrobe, obviously. But, you know, even pushing aside maybe the, the strip sequence and what have you, you know, you cut to the end of the movie where she's going with Harry on missions, doing the tango at the parties. You 100% buy the transformation of Helen from being that housewife we saw at the start of the movie to being this very like elegant agent at the end. Like I think Jamie Lee Curtis guides this character that does have some baggage attached, but makes this character very consistent throughout the movie. Well, you, you think... I think the ultimate scene where she shows that is actually right before the uh, the meeting in the hotel room where she stops and looks at herself in the mirror and she's in this in this evening dress that isn't particularly sexy and she was told to dress sexy so she you know rips off all the the material to sort of reveal more of herself and it's like a transformation when she you know she gains self-confidence through doing this mm-hmm. and it's a real shame that the film kind of poops on that a little bit when she drops the gun um yeah yeah because i think you know you see moments where she is very effective you know when she's you know doing that mission in the hotel room and arnold goes over to kiss her she what does she do she grabs that phone and clocks him out like you can see that helen is a character who's not the wilting violet that you see in a moment of her like throwing the gun in the air from a kickback basically Mm mm-hmm yeah, if you follow that chain through from that moment in the mirror, she should logically just continue to get better and better. You know, she's fighting off Arnie, and then you know she's fighting uh, Tia Carrera later on in the limo. That limo sequence, my god, a- an interesting sequence. Yeah, I mean, I think that fight with her and Tia Carrera is a good example, though, of showing how effective she is. And Jamie Lee Curtis, you know, when you go through the you know the history of her work, she's a very strong physical actress you know you see her in movies like halloween for example but also blue steel um she even did that one i think it's called perfect which is like a gymnastics movie the point is though that jamie lee curtis was known to be a very physical actress who could pull off very physical roles and i do like how they hide that throughout the opening of this movie through her performance and then just really do reveal it as the movie goes i i wrote down in my notes about jamie lee curtis was it was almost like a Superman reveal. So she's got mm-hmm. the glasses on in, in sort of the, the dowdy outfit, as you put it. Um, and then she kind of takes that off and she's Clark Kent. And then she reveals that she's Superman underneath. Yeah. It almost feels like 
how you would envision the end of North by Northwest to be if they continued it after that train sequence. Oh, that's a good point, actually. You are right. Yeah, she does feel like that kind of character who's not at all equipped for the spy world being brought in and being fairly capable at it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Now, Scott, pardon the pun, but we've kind of been dancing around her mission, um, which was a moment that was legendary in 1994. Like, it got a lot of press. And I think even now people talk a lot about that sequence. And I don't think they know how to talk about it anymore because the sense of Harry sending his wife to pose as a prostitute in this mission is, um, shall we say, not something that you'd write in uh, 2020. But in 1994, uh, that's what they went for. I'm not sure if that's in the French film. My guess is probably. I don't know. But my guess is probably. I couldn't find any notes saying that is an invention of this movie. Um, But it's something that hasn't aged great. But I think Jamie Lee Curtis is fantastic in this sequence. Just in terms of just the physicality, but also the physical comedy she's got going on. Yeah, I mean, the bit where she sort of falls over and Arnie drops his his, uh, cassette player. It it's actually makes you kind of laugh. And she gets back up and starts dancing straight away and sort of rolls with the punches. And again, that just leads uh, leans more into the fact that she's actually maybe a really good spy. She just doesn't know it yet. Yeah, she, like, she doesn't have the confidence yet. Yeah. But um, with, that, with that scene, I think a lot of people might have trouble talking about it. The way I look at it, it's... There's certainly some problematic things going on in their relationship. I, I, I wrote down, it reminds me of the Pina Colada song. Okay. With a sort of frustrated partners thing going on. Um, but ultimately, I don't agree with what Arnie's character did. I, I think that's, it shows that they really shouldn't be together. But in terms of the whole dancing scene and Jamie Lee Curtis having to do that on screen for a good four minutes, I, I think she owns that scene. And I think... I to me, I feel like she really enjoyed doing it, and and it wasn't something that she was forced into. No, it does feel like Jamie Lee Curtis owns that scene and walks out looking like the victor in that scene, just in terms of performance, in terms of commitment, and in terms of comedy. I think she just kills it across the board. Yeah, you could definitely have that scene played way more straight than it is, but you're at that point you're on board with her trying to bumble her way through this mission. And, you know, mm-hmm. she's like, she starts that sort of awkward dance, the side to side shuffle. And then like she gets into more like a seductive dance. You're, you're kind of cheering her on. Oh, totally. And I think the problem with the movie and the, why it kind of has this baggage attached is the movie doesn't interrogate Harry Tasker as much. And I think that's maybe more the problem. I suppose it depends on where you fall in terms of who did what in that relationship. The the mm-hmm. easy out would be to say something like, oh, well, you know, she cheated on him or, you know, it depends on what your definition of cheating is. So she deserves to be fooled around with by Harry by interrogating her and sending her on the mission. But, you know, you dig right. a little bit deeper. And I think modern sensibilities uh, teach us to dig a little bit deeper than that. He was a, a very poor partner to her. Oh, yeah. Constantly ignoring her, missing parties, uh, you know, breaking promises. Um, She felt alone and not heard in that relationship. Yeah, it's always fascinating to watch a movie like this, which is dealing with gender politics of the moment, it seems, or it wants to be. And now you look at it 25 plus years later and you're like, oh, like, boy, (laughs) 
it's just a real sign as well of no matter what you think the norms are now at a certain point everyone is going to think that you are a monster in the future yeah delete your internet history folks yeah that's right um yeah, and I don't I don't want to say that this was the norm in 1994 because I do remember Roger Ebert for example calling the sequence out as being um problematic, but uh you know, it's uh it wasn't it didn't stand out like the sore thumb in terms of their relationship dynamics that it does now. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, do you have anything else on Jamie Lee Curtis? No, um I did want to talk about that limo sequence though with her and Tia Carrera that fight. That may be the greatest moment of this entire movie for me is that moment where Jamie Lee Curtis grabs Arnold's arm, gets pulled out of the limo as the limo goes diving off that, you know, at the end of the bridge there. I think that moment is incredible. In terms of like pure Hollywood moments. Yeah. That is the one. If Or if not, it's, it's maybe tied with the rocket being shot through the building into the helicopter. Sure. And Jamie Lee Curtis performed that stunt on her birthday. Um, I believe really? it was her 36th, yeah, 36th birthday, I think. And she was insistent that she wanted to do that stunt. And so, well did done. It. Well done. Mm-hmm. Okay. I didn't, I, I assumed it would have been a stunt double because Arnie had stunt doubles for most of the film. That's right. Jamie Lee Curtis was out there on her birthday, hanging from either Arnold or a stuntman's arm. We don't know which. <laughs> My money's on the stuntman. Probably. <laughs> Uh, right, before we tackle the big bad and the other bad of the film, I want to have a quick shout out to some of the other people. We've mentioned Tom Arnold a couple of times already in our chat. You seem to know a bit more about Tom Arnold and what led him to this film. I, I had no idea really about him until I saw this. So what do you know? Um, well, just that he was known for yeah the Roseanne TV show. Um, but I actually think he's pretty good in this movie. Some of those jokes don't work anymore but i actually think he makes a very good fast talking kind of train wreck counterpart to arnold who is much more of the straight man yeah he kind of gives it the this is what the broken version of arnold looks like basically yeah he's the cautionary tale he's the guy who's had all these marriages fall apart and has these sort of resentful sort of um toxic leanings that arnold is being pulled towards and i think that tom arnold does a lot with that sort of comedy and I mean, this would give birth to a lot of movies starring Tom Arnold in like the, you know, mid 90s where he had stuff like Carpool, Big Bully, uh, The Stupids, uh, McHale's Navy. But, you know, this was the moment where Tom Arnold, I think, shone his brightest. I would say so, because it's the only time I've ever seen him. But uh, the only other thing I mentioned in my notes about Tom Arnold was I do not buy that he hid behind that pillar when the guy was shooting at him. <laughs> That's where, once again, some of the comedy in this movie goes really broad, where you have these weird, almost like slapsticky moments mm-hmm. that I do wonder if they come from that source material of Let Hotel. I have no idea, but um, that does feel like one of those moments. And it is literally followed on from uh, the old man shuffling out of the toilet cubicle. Mm-hmm. Mere seconds apart. Yeah. So they, they do have the some of the odd choices in terms of comedy. But second hit behind that pillar, I just thought, no. No way, son. <laughs> but I do love all the stuff with him as the guy in the van. And it is funny that the final shot of the movie is him in the van complaining about being in the van. Yeah, I didn't realize that was the last shot of the film. Mm-hmm. Good for him. He gets a bit more screen time. Uh, I haven't got much to say about him, really. Otherwise, his performance was fine. He he was the, the dialogue exposition guy, sort of carried him through. I did laugh at the, the bit where they went into their office block and they had that sort of men in black corridor scene 
Sure, yeah. I think we're going to have a lot of office corridors um, that are kind of high techy uh, that we're going to cover in this podcast. Um, I will say, though, like when we talked about Jumpin' Jack Flash, I said if you're going to have these exposition kind of roles or these roles that maybe aren't the flashiest on the on the page, hire comedians because they'll always bring life to it. And I think that's what Tom Arnold does. Yeah, I'd say so, too. Uh, the only other person in terms of maybe the, the good guys I would want to make a mention of is Charlton Heston, of all people. Yes, I think modeled on Nick Fury, I think. That's exactly what I wrote be. down. Yeah, the original version of Nick Fury. For, for those that don't know, the original Nick Fury was a Caucasian guy in the 1960s. And then when they created the ultimate line of comics, which were an alternate timeline of Marvel, they created the Nick Fury that was modeled actually on Samuel L. Jackson. Um and then that's the version that wound up in the movies. Um, but yeah, originally Nick Fury was looked a little more like, well, this. Uh, wasn't he originally played by David Hasselhoff on a, on a film? There was a TV movie, yeah, called Nick Fury, I think Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., yeah. Hmm. I'll, I'll skip that one, thanks. Heston's fun in a role that, I mean, there's nothing on here, but it is fun to see him as the leader of Omega Factor or whatever they're called. Yeah, strange name for a group, but it, it just kind of reminded me of Rip Torn's turn in the Men in Black franchise, where you just get sort of a slightly older actor to come in to do a few scenes to sort of move the plot along. Yeah, I mean, it's a thankless role, but, you know, casting Charlton Heston, who's so iconic as an action hero um, in, you know, movies like, uh, you know, obviously Ben-Hur doing the chariot race and even stuff in like the 70s, like um, uh, Omega Man. Him kind of having that moment with Schwarzenegger is fun to see. And I, I should correct myself. It's Omega Sector, not Factor. There we go. I'd like to take a turn on the baddies of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, the main one is uh, Art Malik, who plays Salim Abu Aziz. Uh, this is where some of the more problematic stuff in the film appears. Yeah, I think Art Malik is actually really good comedically. Like, I think he makes this character who's... I mean, he's a very one-note evil character. Um, but I actually think Art Malik finds ways to inject weird humor into his performance that works really well. Um, I'm not going to say it's the most nuanced take on a terrorist we've ever seen. And I think there's a reason that the movie was so controversial even at the time. But I think Art Malik, you know, as an actor hired to do a role, is bringing a lot that even wasn't necessary or maybe even called on him to deliver. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And it's sort of akin to what Jamie Lee Curtis has brought to the role as well, where you think potentially on the page, this that both of their characters haven't got much going, but they've mm-hmm. brought their own little extras to it that have really pushed it forward. And obviously that's why Jamie Lee Curtis got a nomination for her performance in this film. And, you know, with Art Malik, you think of how many movies you've seen that have this same type of villain. And I'm talking about those kind of forgettable 80s, 90s action movies. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them aren't great and their villains are very one note and forgettable. And to me, Art Malik could be playing that type of character that we would not remember whatsoever. But I actually think he makes the character somewhat feel alive and memorable. And I do love little bits of dialogue where they reference his character being called the sand spider. And they're like, well, why do, why is he called that? And they go, probably because it sounds scary. <laughs> and another great moment is where he's, uh, reciting his speech to the camera and, and the battery kind of runs out and he's being super right. serious and you can see the camera guy's getting a bit sketchy he's not quite sure what's going on and how he's going to deal with it and he just kind of blows his top on the guy um, there's little bits of comedy that they've thrown into it to, to stop it from being this overly dramatic 
mustache twirling guy. Well, they work in a lot of exasperation and frustration in the character that's played for laughs. And yeah, it, it works, I think, for the most part. Yeah, some interesting choices. I mean, chasing Elijah Dushku out onto the scaffolding, I, I still can't get my head around. He's not the brightest of characters. He's he's truly not. <laughs> I mean, why would you chase her out? I don't get it. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, overall, he does turn in the performance that you would remember. And I think that's one of the things about this this film. I wish I'd seen it when I was younger because it, it has some really memorable bits. Mm-hmm. It does. And now, you know, when we're talking about villains, what did you think of Tia Carrere as sort of his opposite, his, his femme fatale, you know, to go with his, I guess, criminal mastermind? Again, I really enjoyed her turn in this film. It was nice to see her. I, I'm more familiar with her from the, the Wayne's World movies and things like that. And so it was nice to see her on screen getting her a little bit of combat going on. And she stayed in the film longer than I thought she would. I think she's great in this movie. I mean, when you see the sequence right up front with Arnold Schwarzenegger doing the tango with her, mm-hmm. I'm like, she's selling this, but then she's also selling completely the action moments where she's fighting with Jamie Lee Curtis, or there's a moment where her character, you really get a sense of how unhinged and violent this character is, where she goes and has a gun to Jamie Lee Curtis's head. And um, Art Malik's character runs in, grabs her hand and pulls it up just as she f- pulls the trigger. And you're like, holy smokes, this Juno Skinner character is vengeful. And I think Tia Carrere does a fantastic job. And it's a real bummer to me that, you know, this should have been like a big announcement for her in terms of, you know, big Hollywood movies and casting her in interesting roles. And it really wasn't. I mean, she might be the the meanest of the bunch in this film. You could at least say Art Malik's character is doing something for a cause that he believes in. She's just being spiteful. And greedy, yeah, because a lot of it's just for profit. Yeah. Um, and I mean, Art Malik's character has that comedy attached to him mm. where you get that sort of exasperation. Whereas um, with uh, Juno Skinner, I don't know that she's a particularly funny character. No, she gets a little bit of a flirt on, but apart from that, she's just cold. Yeah, and she has that moment where, you know, Harry Tasker is assumed dead after, you know, the explosion on the docks, and she's like taunting Jamie Lee Curtis about it. Like, this is a mean-spirited character, and I think... I would have killed to see Tia Carrere play like a femme fatale in a Bond movie. I think she would have been fantastic. Yeah, I could see her in like, maybe not Goldeneye, but any of the follow-up Pierce Brosnan films would have been fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think she would have been really good as like a Xenia on a top type character. Yeah, actually, now I think about it. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, I think we should get on to who I have pegged as the worst person in this film. Okay, who is it? It's Bill Paxton. Okay. What a scramble. Now, now is it a a worse performance or is it a worse character? It may well be both. This character has not aged well. Oh, no. No, no, no. He, I, I I was, again, as I said, I didn't know who was in this film. So when I was seeing people turn up, I was quite surprised. So seeing, I saw Bill Paxton. I thought, oh, great. I'd like Bill Paxton. And then he's he's the worst. <laughs> I don't know. Like my whole thing with this character is the character is a repulsive slime. And I feel like Bill Paxton takes it to the next level. Like he doesn't just hit slimy. He hits pathetic. He hits weirdly funny where I'm like bursting out laughing just at how much Bill Paxton is hamming it up. To me, I don't know. Like I'm kind of 
in awe of how much Bill Paxton commits to being the biggest loser in the history of movies. <laughs> you got to think like he he pees himself twice in this film. Uh-huh. Like this movie has no pity for Bill Paxton. I complained about how they don't really interrogate the Schwarzenegger character over his um behavior towards Helen. They completely interrogate this character. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta think they they take their power and they they run with it because they're, they're hanging this guy over the side of, of of like i don't know a dam or something for what potentially sleeping with arnie's wife my favorite moment of him though is when they are capturing helen and him together and he's screaming <laughs> take her take her <laughs> it just sums up exactly what his character is and it is the worst human being you could think of he is self I mean, he is so self-involved. Bill Paxton commits though. That's why I have a hard time saying it's a bad performance because I feel like I've never seen a performance like this before and I probably never will again. And he's just got that sort of like sweaty man syndrome going on as well. They are glitzing him up between every take. Yeah. Yeah. I love the scene where he's on the test drive with Arnold. And some of the dialogue there, boy, uh, uh, but um, nonetheless, it just cuts to a scene where he's just cackling like maniacally. And that had me laughing. I, I think I'll take it back. His performance wasn't bad. It it, it made me laugh because it, it, that whole schadenfreude thing where you just want to laugh at people for their misfortune because I wanted to see him piss himself. Well, it's a cartoonish performance through and through. Yeah. Although, unfortunately, there are many people like that out there. Oh my god, I hope not. <laughs> I mean, I did think it was a bit of a stretch when they brought his character back for the finale at the end of the movie where he's a waiter at that party. I'm like, come on, come on. I just feel like that, that must have been, okay, we've got Bill Paxton. He's done Aliens by this point. We kind of want to give him something to do. And he leaves the film at the hour and 20 mark and there's still an hour left to go. So I think they just wanted to give him a little bit more screen time. It felt to me like there was some pasting going together. I usually think James Cameron writes scripts that are actually very well assembled. This one's a little all over the place in that like that Bill Paxton scene at the end feels like it kind of comes out of nowhere, as well as Harry um, having to go save his daughter from the terrorists. I'm like, where did this come from? Because it has a scene of Tom Arnold just like running up. And it seems like a lot of it's ADR because they're not showing Tom Arnold's mouth mm -hmm. when a lot of this dialogue's coming out. And he's talking about how they've taken Dana. They're at a high rise in Miami. And I'm like, what? Like, when did this happen? It feels like there's a lot of pasting together going on. See, now you say it, I could see that there may have been a different ending at some point. It's possible. And yeah, because they, they get rid of the first, well, the first three bombs in quite quick succession. Mm -hmm. The two go up in the bridge. The one blows up, which I mean... They are far too close to that explosion, but let's not get into that. Um, but then, yeah, then there's this, this whole additional 25-minute scene of him just flying a Harrier off and going one-on-one -on -one with the bad guys. I mean, I could find nothing in behind the scenes on this movie that indicates that there was a reshot final ending on this movie or anything. And James Cameron is pretty, you know, his movies are pretty well planned out when he goes in, so... I have a hard time believing that he would just, you know, change it on the fly during production, especially a production this size. But it does feel weird. And it almost makes you kind of wonder if the Art Mallet character died 
during that chase, uh, you know, across the bridge in the Florida Keys or something. Mm. Like, or, or the Harriers took it down or something like that. Or he, yeah, oh, yeah. he shot it with a rocket launcher. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Like, it does feel kind of weird, but there's no evidence that really supports this reading. But it, it is weird just the way the dialogue pastes it all together. Yeah, that that's something that I, I mentioned it earlier on when we were talking about the film and, and the pacing, that one bit that bumped on me. It, it was around that time. I, that was the time I looked at the clock. Mm-hmm. Especially not long before the bomb went off. I thought, okay, this feels like the end of the film. And then I looked on my sort of how much left to view and it says like 40 minutes. And I thought, oh, oh, okay. What have we got left? And then obviously we have the whole Harrier scene. So I, I obviously was aware of the time at that point. So that's why I had a little bit of trouble with how they paced it. Well, here's my question too. You have that big moment where um, Harry and Helen kiss while the atomic bomb goes off in the background. Mm-hmm. Doesn't that feel like a last final moment? of an act yeah that's what i mean it was around that time you just feel like that is the yeah. button for the film you could still have the the future scene mm-hmm. as like a, a, a credits scene or something like that that works but yeah the whole like kissing in front of the explosion thing is it's it's pure cloak and dagger ending yeah like you have that and then you have that one year later coda at the end to kind of wrap up the movie yeah. like i can completely buy it um, I mean, I can't complain. I can complain about maybe about how that final sequence is tacked onto the movie and the dialogue that pastes it in. But the actual sequence itself is so phenomenal that I find it hard to complain. I mean, there's not a lot of films where Arnie could just say you're fired and shoot a rocket and blow up a helicopter and get away with it. No, exactly. And it, exactly. it completely lands, just like the Harrier mm-hmm. did. Another person I want to reference actually is Grant Hesloff, who plays Arnold's other co-worker who helps out with um going on some missions he shows up at the end with the video camera and then pulls out the gun he is notable because he's actually george clooney's producing partner the two of them have produced all of the movies that george clooney has directed um, grant heslov has been nominated for multiple oscars um it's just really funny to see him here as this sort of secondary um you know sidekick I had no experience with the guy. I didn't know stuff about George Clooney, but he seemed fine in what he was doing. But like I said, I had no background on him. He does get the um, sand spider punchline. So I'll give him that. A couple other people just referenced. Brad Fidel did the music for this. He did the music for the Terminator films as well. I think the score in this movie is fantastic. I don't think it really jumped out to me particularly, but now I think about it, it, it it kept the pace of the film up. But there's no tracks that stick in my mind. Right. I miss Brad Fidel. Like he used to do these James Cameron films and some other work. You don't hear him as much anymore, uh, but he used to be so great. Um, the other person I want to reference actually is um, Peter Lamont, who did the art direction on this movie. Peter Lamont was the art director on a lot of James Bond movies. So this is that James Bond crossover. And so I think a lot of the maybe aesthetics of this movie feel somewhat Bondy and because of Peter Lamont being there. That makes sense. That's a nice connection there. I had a couple of final notes as well, if you don't mind me chucking them in. Go for it. Now, do you remember when they're going into the the secret uh, department inside the building, the Omega department or whatever it was called? Yeah. Do you remember those two guards standing behind the plexiglass? Yep. In my head, I went straight to the Seinfeld episode, The Maestro. I just thought, <laughs> get those guys a chair. <laughs> Hey, there's no sitting at Omega Set. <laughs> and to be fair, they were even Arnie was standing at the computer, so it's working desks at Omega Sector. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> um, another thing was in that uh, toilet scene because I love talking about toilet scenes. 
I'm not too clued up on Terminator One as much as I am T two. I'm I'm fairly fluent in T two. Mm-hmm. I seem to recall Arnie wearing a green jacket in Terminator One, quite distinctive jacket. And the guy who goes to fight him, the quite built uh, chap who goes to fight him in the toilet, seems to be wearing exactly the same jacket. Is that something that jumped out to you? No, it didn't actually. Maybe it was just my brain. It's something I'll have to look into. Yeah, I'll have to check out Terminator again. That's a good excuse to go back and watch Terminator. Um, Sorry, one other sequence we didn't touch on that I think is worth mentioning too is the scene where Arnold is loaded up on sodium uh, Adidol, the truth serum. Um, I think this is a comedic high point for Schwarzenegger in this movie. Mm -hmm. And I just want to acknowledge it because he's very funny in the sequence where Jamie Lee Curtis is like, are we going to die? He's like, oh yeah, oh yeah. (laughs) And he... It, that's another bit that makes you laugh in the film. And then he, he obviously switches back onto assassin spy mode where he's like, oh, I'm probably going to kill you in a minute. And then, then yeah. delivers. Yep. It's a great sequence uh, in a movie that has uh, a lot of good sequences. Now, I do have a, a final question for you before we move on to the other final question. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it comes from Bill Paxton. Cam, would a spy pee himself? <laughs> I guess we'll find out in the films to come, right? Are we like keeping track now? P watch. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, we're keeping track of like bathroom fights. We're keeping track of um, a few other things. Um, Felix lighter blindness ratings. Um, I guess we'll have to keep track of P watches. Seems like it. Although it seems to be like P and toilet. There's a lot of that sort of stuff involved. I would say a spy might pee himself if he had to. Sure. So I think so. If, yeah, I think if the cover requires it. Exactly. Like maybe, maybe Bill Paxton was actually a spy and this is the best cover that anyone's ever had. The spin-off no one wants to see. Well, indeed. But um although it is sad to acknowledge to you that Bill Paxton's no longer with us, who is so invaluable as a character actor. I, I miss him a lot. And he brought a lot to this film, and I did write down that he felt shortchanged, but he did bring a lot to it. Mm-hmm. Um yep. right. I think that brings us on to the moment of truth. Cam, does True Lies make the knock list? Ooh, I feel like this is tougher for obviously a number of reasons dealing with the movie's legacy, but also like, is this the best James Cameron movie? No, I mean, I think James Cameron movies, this ranks a little further down the list. Um, But I don't know of another spy movie like this where... We're going to have such a massive blockbuster scale with these James Cameron level set pieces and just incredible visuals. So like for me, I could, I'm curious, I want to hear your version before I really come down on a final answer. But like, to me, I can justify it in terms of being an Arnold Schwarzenegger spy film, because I think Arnold is really on fire here. Um, as well as Jamie Lee Curtis, too, as well as the action and James Cameron delivering top-notch set pieces. But as like an overview, I think the movie has some issues. So I'm curious where you come down. When I was ruminating on this film after watching it for the second time and, and trying to figure out in my head if it needs to go on the knock list or not, I found myself asking what other films are like this film, and I struggled to think of any. Like you could say the comedy is in some of the Austin Powers and the Johnny English films, so that's the zany comedy spy films. But this isn't really that. It has a lot of more action in it that I, yeah. I think is missing from the Austin Powers and Johnny English films. 
And it definitely walks that line of action and comedy and spy. And I think it does it really well. I'm a, I'm actually a really big fan of this. And I didn't know until you told me earlier on that there's no Blu-ray copy because I was going to go hunt one down. So that's quite disappointing. Uh, so I actually went with a yes. Yeah, I mean, I can completely understand why. I, I think I'm going to lean towards a yes as well um, because of just, you're right, there's no movie like this. Like James Cameron makes films that whether you like his movies or not, no one else could have made them. And True mm-hmm. Lies feels like such a distinct version of a spy film filtered through the psyche and maybe um, <laughs> some of the um, more problematic elements of James Cameron, but it is a complete, you know, auteur film. And so like that it excites me. And so like, it, it's a movie I want to recommend people watch just to get sort of that experience of what happens when James Cameron makes a spy film. And you've got to think we've let some other films onto the Noclus so far. I think about North by Northwest, for instance. Which, which got on for a lot of reasons. It's a fantastic film. But there's a lot of mm-hmm. problematic representation in that film too. But it's like it's gone too far backwards in time now where we kind of give it a pass. That's a really good point because we had the same issues with Ipcris File as well where there was a couple moments that made us go like, ew. Uh, same with Dr. No as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but we tend to look at those because we were born after that point, you know, I'm born in 1980 and you're born in what year? 1987. Okay. So like we tend to look at, you know, movies that exist in the sixties, fifties, seventies, whatever, as being kind of old timey, like they belong to an era before we were alive and conscious. Whereas when we're dealing with movies in this case, like 1994, where I'm 13 years old, it's tougher to, I guess, tackle it as being an older movie with older values existing within my lifetime yeah and so given that i feel like we need to i don't want to say give the problems a pass because we've addressed some of the problems in in this podcast and we've pointed out i have a lot of problems with the uh, some of the representation of their relationship i obviously there's some stuff behind the scenes that is reprehensible Mm -hmm. but i think the product that they delivered still needs to be celebrated and if you're going to um point to the big action movies of the 90s i think this one is going to be up there on the the chart as the most important too it's it's a you know obviously terminator 2 is in there speeds in there but this one's up there as well and ultimately uh, as i said in the beginning i came into this movie completely blank and i really liked it and as we said in the beginning this list is about what we think is the best spy films and films that we really like too. And if they combine, mm-hmm. then they make the knock list. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. So this may be like um, one of the ones that has maybe the more uh, the more prominent issues attached to it. Um, but I do think in terms of spectacle, in terms of performances, both from Schwarzenegger and Curtis, in terms of direction from James Cameron, and just all of the technicians that worked on this movie, this is pretty top tier stuff. Yeah, I agree. So it's a yes from me. What about you, Cam? Yeah, same here. Okay. There you have it, folks. It's a yes and a yes. And True Lies is officially joining the pantheon of the knock list. And with that revelation, the dossier on True Lies is complete and filed as classified. Support for Spy Hearts is brought to you by Manscaped. When it comes to below-the-waist grooming, 
Nobody does it better. Manscaped's tech masterminds provide the most efficient tools an aspiring spy could hope for when it comes to prepping the family jewels. So Scott, what do you do to look after your double O's? Well, Cam, as you know, we work on Her Majesty's Secret Service, and that means sometimes we need to improvise. I've had to rely on all kinds of unreliable methods, including beard trimmers and even razor blades. And let's just say a couple of times my 007 almost became a 006. Put down the gold-cutting laser, Scott. <laughs> because as Q once said, never let them see you bleed and always have a Manscaped strategy. Well, Manscaped delivers on both fronts, thanks to their new and improved Lawnmower 3.0. This state-of-the-art electric hair trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade, a 90-minute battery, and the company's pioneered advanced skin-safe technology. Agents can trust their safety will be guaranteed when it comes to field work. Plus, this technology is waterproof and features an illuminating LED light for close-up precision. Even if you're swimming with sharks, you'll be able to keep the British end up. And this trimmer's high-speed 70,000 RPM motor will never compromise your stealth mode thanks to Manscaped's quiet stroke technology. These guys understand the demands of the lifestyle and are even throwing in a USB-powered charging stand as well. Spies do tend to live out of a suitcase after all. Don't I know it. Experience it firsthand yourself. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SPYHARDS. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S at manscaped.com. We officially grant you all a license to trim. Your thunderballs will thank you. Cam, what are we doing next week? Scott, we're meeting back up with Harry Palmer at the grocery store for Funeral in Berlin, the 1966 sequel to The Ipcris File, directed by Goldfinger Helmer, Guy Hamilton. Hey, that's a good director at the helm. Uh, I wasn't as hot on the Ipris file as you were, uh, but it did make the knock list, and I did say that hopefully it will improve in the sequels, so I'm looking forward to checking it out. I really am too. I enjoyed the Ipcris file a lot, and uh, hopefully I enjoy Funeral in Berlin. Can we have maybe a little bit more action this time and less uh, less pushing down the stairs? More shopping, damn it. <laughs> uh, righto. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch Funeral in Berlin before next week and let us know what you think. Uh, you can follow us discreetly, of course, at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, good luck among the shadows.